0: It's my privilege to invite uh, Pastor Matthew Richards to come and to preach the word to us. Good evening evening. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here uh, with you and it is a privilege to be here, and we've been praying that the Lord would bless our time. Uh, today I'd like to uh, spend a bit of time in First Peter and focus on two verses from First Peter five verses six and seven. But before we do that, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Luke chapter eight. Uh, Luke eight twenty-two to twenty-four. And we know this scene well. This is the disciples and Jesus uh, in a boat. And the text reads, One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, He fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. The storm rages. The disciples are terrified. And Jesus is sleeping. What a contrast. Do you ever imagine what it would have been like for the disciples to be on that boat struggling with the storm and Jesus is asleep? Earlier that day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to the other side of the lake. And normally that would have been no problem for the disciples. Some of them were fishermen. They had spent countless hours on the water in all sorts of circumstances. And those who were not fishermen knew that they could trust their competent and experienced friends. Then a storm arose. The squall came. A sudden, terrifying wind came down on the lake. It was of such significance that even those disciples who were familiar with the water were terrified. When they left dry land, it seemed as if everything was in control. But now they know clearly that they are not in control. They don't know how to get out of the situation. They fear for their lives. And they are very aware of two things. First, they recognize their great danger. As far as they are concerned, they are perishing. And second, they know that their master, the Messiah, the Son of God, is in the boat. And what do they do in that moment of great peril? They turn to Jesus. They look to him for help. They cast their significant and terrifying anxieties upon the Lord. And that is what God's people are to do. Whatever situation you find yourself in, the call of God to us is to cast our anxieties upon the Lord. We are to run to the Lord. We are to find refuge in the Father and the Son. Peter was one of those well-experienced fishermen who experienced that terrible squall. On that day, he understood that he couldn't do anything to protect himself and the others. His weaknesses, his vulnerability, and his inability were clearly exposed. In that moment, he learned the importance of turning to Jesus, who is a very present help in times of trouble. And that's what Peter tells God's people to do, in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. The apostle knows that his beloved audience will encounter all measure of fearful and dangerous situations. The context that Peter is writing to are believers who are dispersed, who are spread throughout modern-day Turkey, and he knows that they are going to face an increasing amount of persecution, of opposition for their faith in the Lord. He refers to the fiery ordeal that they are already undergoing and that they will have to deal with more and more in chapter 4, verse 12. And out of concern for them, he writes this letter, and he tells them, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, of hardships, cast your anxieties on the Lord. Look to him because he cares for you. As we look at this text, first from chapter 6, our first point is the call to humility. Verse 6 provides the foundation for verse 7. We cast our anxieties on him because God has a mighty hand, a mighty hand that we are called to humble ourselves under. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. I recently heard humility defined in this way. Humility is not thinking of yourself, thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility doesn't mean that we have a low opinion of ourselves, that we are constantly beating ourselves up and minimizing who we are in Christ and our accomplishments. It does mean, however, that we think of ourselves less. Our attention is not always on me, but we focus more on God and on others. Humility is an essential Christian virtue. The scripture is full of commands to humility. There are so many examples of godly men and women who display the characteristic of humility. There are so many warnings against being proud and arrogant In verse 5 of uh, 1 Peter 5, the apostle writes that we are to clothe ourselves with humility before one another. And you wonder if Peter uses that phrase of clothing yourself in humility. He thinks back to John 13 and Jesus taking off his garments because he clothed himself in humility when he got down and washed the feet of the disciples. We are to adorn ourselves with humility. And we do so remembering that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are to humble ourselves, and Peter specifically says that we are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. So what is Peter striving to convey to us and to them when he refers to God's mighty hand? Well, here are a few Old Testament texts in which we see similar language. Exodus 6.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Deuteronomy 7.8 But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then Jeremiah 32.21 You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. This idea of the mighty hand of God is intended to draw their minds back to the exodus, back to the time when God took this people who were oppressed, who were in bondage, and liberated them. He delivered them. They were brutally treated and endured captivity, harsh taskmasters, and oppressive conditions. And God, by his mighty hand, brought them out of it. In the midst of their suffering, they cried out to God, and he heard them. And in due time, he responded and delivered them. God made it clear that they are his people, his special treasure, and he loves them greatly. These truths are very important and relevant for Peter's audience. The apostle is writing to people who are increasingly undergoing difficulties because of their faith. And they expect that more and more intense persecution is on the horizon. He's writing to those who can identify with the hardships that the nation of Israel faced in Egypt from corrupt and unjust authorities. And in light of what they learned from the time of the Exodus, Peter tells them, to trust in God. Trust in God's providence. Providence, as I expect you know, refers to God's sovereign governing and care over everything, including the affairs of this world and over the details of our lives. Humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand means that we will trust in God's rule over the world, over the church, And over our lives. And there are times when God's rule seems confusing and hard to understand. There are times when God's providence is hard, when His providence seems to be a frowning providence. Well, how do we respond in such instances when God's rule is hard, when we don't like it, when it involves sickness or hardship or danger or brokenness or persecution? The proud individual wants to call God to account for what he does and how he governs the world. Some people think that God has a lot of explaining to do, that he is somehow accountable to his creatures for his decisions and actions. But Peter takes the opposite view. He says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before God. We are to recognize that we may not like or fully understand what God is doing. But he is God, and we are not. And we are to humble ourselves before God and turn to him with our anxieties and problems, looking to him as the disciples did in the boat, as the Israelites did before the Exodus, looking to him for deliverance. Having a humble perspective requires us to have a biblical and realistic view of who God is. This is what the psalmist writes in Psalm 113, verses 4 through 6. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens, who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. We look around the earth and we marvel at the spectacular sights. And then we look up to the heavens and we are further amazed at what we see. On a clear night, you look up and you see the expanse of the stars, and it's breathtaking. We feel so small when we observe these things. And yet, God needs to stoop down to look at the heavens. He needs to crouch down, as it were, to look at, from his position, what are the tiny planets and stars. These things are so far beneath him. What a lesson that psalm gives us in perspective. If the heavens, which are so glorious to us, are so small to God that he needs to stoop down to look at them, what does that say about the greatness of who God is? Remember also these words from Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways, everything God does, is perfect. And the manner of his ways, we cannot fathom, for they are above our ability to comprehend. There is none like the Lord, perfect in being, perfect in his thoughts, and perfect in his ways. So we are called to humble ourselves before God. One writer says that in this exhortation, Peter wants the readers to subject themselves to God in such a manner that they put their confidence in God alone, to recognize the greatness and goodness of all that God does, even if we're confused or frustrated or questioning in the moment. Being humble before God doesn't mean that we aren't confused, but it means that in our confusion, we trust in Him. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And if you trust in Him, if you humble yourselves believing that God is in control and looking to Him for help and deliverance, then what will happen? And Peter says, In due time, He will lift you up, He will exalt you. In the midst of suffering, and the trials of this world, Peter turns their eyes to the Lord. Trust in him. And so for these believers who are undergoing persecution and threats, where they're concerned about their family and their church, they're concerned about the consequences for standing firm for Christ and professing allegiance to their Lord and Savior, What do these words mean for them? Stand firm. Humble yourselves before him. Humble yourselves through times of persecution. And he will lift you up in due time. And that may come in this life. Circumstances may change drastically. The tables might turn so that the one who is persecuted or oppressed may end up having the upper hand. And that's what happened in the Exodus. The Israelites were not only liberated, but they plundered the Egyptians when they left. In due time, by God's mighty hand, they were lifted up. Another example is Daniel. He was hated and lied about. The enemies, His enemies manipulated the situation to malign his reputation, striving to kill him. But Daniel endured his time in the lion's den. And because he was innocent before God... He was protected by God's mighty hand. And in the end, Daniel's reputation grew and his enemies faced the fury of the lions. Sometimes God brings about deliverance, justice in the present. But not always. For these people, vindication might have to wait for the day of the Lord. Revelation 6, 9 to 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The martyrs cry out, How long? When will vindication come? When will our blood be avenged? Well, the scripture is clear. It will come. It will come in due time. At the end of the age, those who have been faithful to Jesus will be richly and publicly rewarded by the Lord of glory. And so Peter encourages them, whatever you're going to go through in this life, hardships are coming, but trust in the Lord. Humble yourselves before his mighty hand. He is the God of providence. He has everything in control. And... In due time, maybe this life, but definitely in eternity, he will exalt you. You will be lifted up. Your faithfulness will be rewarded. Trust in that. And so with all that in mind, that's the call to humility. And our second point is the expression of humility. In verse 7, the NIV, which which I'm using, has a sentence at the end of verse 6 and then a second command or exhortation in verse 7 but the ESV that AJ read from continues the sentence on and so it explains that you humble yourself and what does that look like well it's casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you flowing out of this idea of humbling ourselves before God's providential hand well that means that we will cast all our anxieties Upon him. And the assumption is that they are anxious. The writers of the scriptures understand the human condition and the anxiousness in this world. Peter doesn't say, in the event that any of you should so happen to be anxious, he assumes that they will know fear. And of course, he knows that from his own experience. The apostle himself trembled before the servants who asked him on the night of Jesus' arrest if he was a follower of the Son of God. He trembled, and he denied. He said, I don't even know the guy. Peter knows well what it is to be afraid and anxious. For Peter's audience, living in a time of hardship where the threat of suffering for their faith is rising, they have much to be anxious about. Persecution is coming, and they think, how's it going to affect me? What harm will they inflict? Will I stand? What will happen if they threaten or if they hurt me? What form will the devil's opposition take? What are the fiery ordeals that I will have to face? Persecution is looming. And how will it affect my family? How will the safety and security of those I love be affected? Will I be taken away and separated from my spouse? Will my family have to endure hardship for the name of Jesus? What will happen to my precious children that I am trying to raise for the Lord in a godless environment? Will my children or grandchildren succumb to the pressures and hostility of the world. Persecution is looming. How will it affect the church? What will happen to my brothers and sisters? Will the local church survive? Will the leaders and congregants remain faithful or compromise on the truths? All these anxieties are going through the minds of these people as they contemplate the looming persecution. There are all sorts of anxieties associated with the threat of persecution. And more and more, some of these questions are coming to our own minds. We are anxious about raising our kids in a world that is increasingly hostile to the things of the Lord and that has more and more seemed to have lost all sense of decency and reason. We are anxious about what these things mean for the church for our church, for our families, and our children and grandchildren. Like the people Peter is writing to, we too are living in days that are anxious for the faithful. We are aware more and more that following Jesus will come at a cost. And though Peter has specifically in mind fears relating to suffering for Christ, there are general principles that we can apply from these verses to any anxiety or care or fear that we might contend with. This is a fallen world, a restless world, and there are a myriad of anxieties that we face, concerns about our health, our future, our circumstances, our finances, our children, and so on. We are anxious over the salvation of those we love. We become anxious when we are aware that circumstances are out of our control and when we do not know what will happen or what we can or should do. We become anxious when we are like the helpless fishermen trying to control a boat in the storm. And what does Peter say? We are to cast all Our anxieties on the Lord. Not a few, not some, not most, not the ones we think are really big, all of them. If there is something that causes you any measure of anxiety, then your heavenly Father wants you to cast it upon him. His shoulders are big enough to handle any problem or concern that you have. David writes in Psalm 56, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? When I am afraid, not if I am afraid, but when. When David is afraid, he puts his trust in the Lord. He casts his cares upon God. and That is the pattern that we are to follow. When you're afraid, trust in God, for he is faithful and loving. Well, practically, how do we do this? What does casting our cares on the Lord mean? Well, here's a pattern prayer, if you will, from Second Chronicles chapter twenty. And this is Jehoshaphat, the king of uh, of Judah, and he's afraid because there are enemies, strong enemies, powerful enemies, coming against him. So 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 20, and his prayer begins uh, partway through verse 6. And he says, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. So the king is afraid. The people are afraid, and they are powerless. There's nothing that they can do about the onslaught of this enemy that is prepared to come to destroy them. And so he casts his cares upon the Lord. And what does he do in the first part of this prayer? He begins by recounting who God is. He reflects on the attributes, on the characteristics of God. And so when we cast our cares upon the Lord, we are to remember who God is. And of course, verse 6 in 1 Peter 5 draws our minds to that as well. He is the God who has a mighty hand, the mighty hand of providence. And so when you cast your cares upon the Lord, reflect on who he is, the greatness of his being. Consider the attributes of God, his faithfulness, his love, his majesty, his perfections. In preparation for Christmas, I've seen advertisements for wooden ornaments on which is engraved the various names of Jesus. And it's a glorious and soul-enriching exercise to meditate on the names of Jesus and also on the names of God. And so that's what we're to do when we cast our cares upon him. And second, we also remind ourselves of God's word, of his promises. And King Jehoshaphat does that as well. As he's praying, he says that um, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? You've made these promises to us—promises to be your people, to be with us, to bless us forever—and so he's bringing these promises to God in prayer. And so when we cast our cares upon the Lord, we reflect on the promises that God has made to us. And we have so many promises in the scriptures, promises of God's protection and provision of his presence. Jesus says, nothing will be able to separate you from me. He will always be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. We have all of these promises. So as we cast our cares upon the Lord, Meditate on who God is. Meditate upon the promises of God. And then with all of these things in mind, we lay out our anxieties before him. Continuing on with Jehoshaphat's prayer in Second Chronicles 20, verse 10. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He declares his and their commitment and allegiance to the Lord. We've been faithful. We've been obedient. We did what you told us to do. And now we don't know what to do. We recognize that we are powerless in the face of these anxieties, this fear. And we turn to you. He casts his cares upon the Lord. That's the pattern we're to follow. We bring our anxieties to the Lord. We can use these words, Lord, I'm powerless. I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I'm overwhelmed. These fears, these anxieties are real. And I turn my eyes to you. And I trust in you. And I bring them before you. And then we trust that he will deal with our situation according to his grace and wisdom. And he might not deal with it the way we want him to or in the timing we want him to. But we're to humble ourselves before him and to trust that he is the God who does all things well. If you're in Christ, he is your heavenly father, and he loves you. And Trust that he will do what is good and right in your situation. And it may be painful for the present, but afterwards it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And you can be assured that God will do right by you Because, as Peter reminds them, he cares for you. The sovereign, all-powerful God, the creator of heaven and earth, cares for you. He knows your name. He understands your weaknesses. He is compassionate about your anxieties. He really and truly cares. Cast all your anxiety on him, Because he cares for you. That is the heart of God toward his people. He cares for us. Think about those you care about. Your family and your friends. Your children and your grandchildren. What do you want for them? Do you want them to live in a state of frustration and anxiety? Well, of course not. You want their hearts to be at peace. And that's what God wants for us as well. He wants our hearts to be at peace. The theme of peace is front and center in the Upper Room Discourse. The sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples, recorded in John 14 through 16, just prior to his betrayal and arrest. Jesus begins the sermon with these words Do not let your hearts be troubled. So he knows that they are going to go through troubling times. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? "'Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. "'If that were not so, would I have told you "'that I go, I'm going there to prepare a place for you? "'And if I go and prepare a place for you, "'I will come back and take you to be with me, "'that you also may be where I am.'" And then later in that same chapter, Jesus says, "'Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. "'I do not give to you as the world gives. "'Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid.'" And then he concludes the sermon with these words, John sixteen thirty three, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have, will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We can be at peace because God cares for us. We can be at peace because Jesus promises to be with us. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then we know that That peace is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll always be with us. The Spirit, the presence of Jesus with us, always. And so we can be at peace. We can be at peace because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. This world is a world of anxiety, troubles, difficulties. The world that the people that Peter was writing to live in But Jesus has overcome the world. The persecutors, they don't have the last word. Jesus does. He's overcome it all. And in these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then we can be at peace because Jesus says, I have future plans for you. This world isn't all that there is. There's my father's house. And Peter, writing to the... um, to the elect exiles in 1 Peter again and again he draws their minds to eternity you have an inheritance that cannot perish spoil or fade you know he reminds them over and over again yeah this world is going to be difficult it will be hard there's no denying that but look ahead it's worth it the sufferings the trials the difficulties of this world they'll fade away eternity is forever, and it'll be glorious. Uh, this week, uh, in preparing for our prayer meeting, uh, we've been going through a series on the attributes of God, and the writer uh, was talking about the idea of heaven being uh, eternal, and after, when he was a young pastor, he preached on that, and then a lady came up to him and said that that idea actually terrifies her, because she's like, it's forever. It's forever. And, you know, we're going to run out of things to do and people to talk about. Like, there's only a finite number of conversations we can have. Well, she, of course, has it wrong. What is eternal life? What does Jesus say? Eternal life is knowing you and knowing the one you sent, Jesus Christ, John 17, 3. And so eternal life will be the exploration of the infinite God. We sing, knowing you, there is no greater thing. And we're going to spend eternity knowing God better and better and better. And we can never fully grasp the depth of God because he is infinite and eternal. And so Peter encourages them over and over again. Have peace. You can have peace because Jesus is with you, because Jesus has overcome the world, and because Jesus has secured your future in glory. So is that your hope? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation? In Christ alone, our hope is found. Peter concludes with a benediction. Verses ten and eleven of first uh, Peter five. And the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And Christ is the one whose birth we celebrate, and Christ is the one whose death we remember. And Christ is the one who, because of his resurrection, we have an eternal hope. God cares for us. He wants us to be at peace. And he knows that peace comes from trusting in him. We are to cast our anxieties upon the Lord. And as we do so, we will discover that he is perfectly faithful and trustworthy. And as our troubles and difficulties increase, we'll discover that God is even more faithful and trustworthy than we previously knew. So look to the Lord. In times of hardship and difficulty, remember who God is and what he has promised. When you're overwhelmed, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peace, perfect peace In this dark world of sin, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. Peace, perfect peace, death shadowing us and ours. Jesus has vanquished death in all its powers. Peace, perfect peace, our future all unknown. Jesus we know, and he is on the throne. The hymn writer asks these questions. Can we know perfect peace? We can because of Jesus. And then he concludes by saying, it is enough. Earth's struggles soon shall cease. And Jesus called to heaven's perfect peace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that in Christ there is peace. In this world, we will have trouble. And our Father, we thank you for this reminder that we are to cast all our anxieties upon you because you care for us. And our Father, we do, I do pray that you would be with each and every individual in this place, whatever anxieties, whatever cares, whatever weights are upon them. Our Father, bring peace, bring comfort, bring hope. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for our precious Savior. In Jesus' name we pray.